I'm going to have us take a deep breath because that's like, okay, now I'm going to try and preach. <laughs> but it's actually, I was joking with somebody, the verse where we're in Psalm 23, and we're at the, the valley of the shadow of death. So there you go. I didn't plan this. <laughs> but rather than have the screens on the, or the words on the screen this morning, because I knew this was coming, and I know we just kind of, some of us just need to take a collective, we need to take a collective deep breath and just allow God to speak to our hearts, well, collectively, but also personally. Um, I'm going to read and just invite you if, you, if you would like to close your eyes and receive this word. It's from the voice translation, which is a little different, um, but I, I love the difference. So if you're familiar with Psalm 23, you're going to go, no, it doesn't say that. Don't go there. Let the words that I say and what the Lord says here um, just wash over your heart, okay? So if you want to close your eyes, feel free to, or just receive this word for you. So this is from Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. He cares for me always. He provides me rest in rich green fields beside streams of refreshing water. He soothes my fears. He makes me whole again, steering me off worn, hard paths to roads where truth and righteousness echo his name. Even in the unending shadows of death's darkness, I am not overcome by fear because you are with me in those moments. Near with your protection and guidance, I am comforted. Let's pray. God, thank you for your comfort. We thank you that um, you speak through your word. You've chosen a lot of different ways in our lives to speak, but you speak through this, this word that's on pages, but uh, speaks into hearts, through lives, through generations. Thank you. And so this morning, God, as we come under your word, we just pray that your spirit would bring new life to it for us, personally and collectively. Would you equip us to be a people of hope in this city that uh, you've called us to, in the neighborhoods and families as well that we're called to. Praise in Christ's name. Amen. Well, hey, psychologically speaking, we are, we're kind of wired to be people of certainty. Um, it's kind of the framework for today. And we struggle with ambiguity and the, we, have, we struggle with the unknown. Like some of you, even when we shared this news of Jenny transitioning, there's unknowns. And that's natural to struggle with that. Like if you think back over your own story, there are anecdotal, there's anecdotal evidence of this, right? Uh, Christmas, you can think of a Christmas where those presents are sitting under the tree for weeks and you're just like, oh my gosh, and you took your X-Acto knife. This is not a personal story. And you opened all the presents very carefully and looked inside the boxes and then sealed them back up, right? Nobody's ever done that? I did. So anyway, you have that. Or you get a, a blood test exam result and the doctor's, don't know what it means. Um, you are uh, laid off from work. You see a market collapse. You know, a certain election result happens, and you're not you're not sure what's going to happen next. So we are, and we're wired to be people of certainty. We don't like uncertainty, and this is compounded by this desire in a world that when, that when we want fairness, there's this intuitive desire from a young age. You see this on playgrounds. When something bad happens, you want to you make it right. You want to fix it. So you want to attempt 
to place everything within a meaningful framework to say things like, there must be a reason for this. There must be a reason for this. We don't like uncertainty. We need to know. So back in 2013, Maria Konnikova, she was a contributor for The New Yorker, she wrote this article that I find fascinating called Why We Need Answers. And she says this, this is a quote, the human mind is incredibly averse to uncertainty and ambiguity from an early age. We respond to uncertainty or lack of clarity by spontaneously generating plausible explanations. What's more, we, we hold on these invented explana- explanations as having intrinsic value of their own. Once we have them, we don't let them go. We don't like to. And she goes on to talk about this work of Jerome Kagan, who came up with this thing called the uncertainty resolution. And this term, it was, he coined this, and he said that it's defined as, as individuals who desire a firm answer to a question and an aver- have an aversion toward ambiguity, this internal drive for certainty in an uncertain world. And when we're faced by heightened ambiguity in our lives and like this lack of clear-cut answers, we have this sort of uh, certainty resolution. We need to know as soon as possible or else we're gonna, everything's going to fall apart. Has that been you ever? Just got to know. We all want to know. At, very, we, we have, at various levels, we need certitude, constants, insurance policies. Literally, it's in our DNA is what I'm trying to say. And then we move. And then we change jobs. And then we have children. <laughs> and we experience life-threatening, debilitating illness. Then someone in our life goes on to a new place. Uh, we experience deep doubt. These are experiences common to all of our lives. Uh, so if you're, if you're feeling that right now, you're not alone. But we also need to be careful. Uh, our need for certainty can become kind of all-controlling, right? Almost debilitating in and of itself. And then keep us for, for, from further growth. And thus, the antidote that the Bible gives us uh, for uncertainty is this, the most common one-liner in the Bible. Does anybody know it? Do not be afraid. I once heard that it's, you can look through the Bible Someone once counted 365 times that phrase appears in the Bible. And uh, whether it's true or not, that's one for each day of the year, and that's cool, isn't it? But, but what's the point? I mean, well, how's that going to help me? Thanks, Jack. There's 365 ways I can remember to not be afraid. I'm still uncertain. It's of little help to say that. It sounds like a sermon illustration. How do I apply it into my life without it becoming cliche? Well, Psalm 23.4 actually helps us. It's... And, and David shows us in Psalm 23, 4, uh, even though I walk through the shadow, the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. I will not be afraid. You are with me. Your, your rod and your staff, they comfort or guide me. He shows us about awareness. Facing uncertainty is really about awareness. And so we're going to look at three levels of awareness this morning that David offers us. If you're kind of in an uncertain time, you don't know what the next step's going to be. Whether you, you've had children, you have no idea how to raise them, you're moving, you have no idea what's coming next, you're facing illness, conflict in your marriage, whatever. David offers some help here. Three levels of awareness. So here's the first one. And it's a little fill in the blank if you have a bulletin, so that's fun too. The first one is expose the false shepherds, okay? So when David says at the beginning of Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, and then he says here in, in verse 4, I will fear no evil for you are with me. The clear implication is that the, it's the Lord and the Lord alone that is David's shepherd. There are no alternate shepherds in David's universe. Like, he's got one shepherd. And then in the valley, it's the Lord and the Lord alone that David is seeking for guidance. There's not another guide there, just the Lord. And what this teaches us, first and foremost, is our need to expose our instinct. We all have this. 
to go after other shepherds in our lives. We are all seeking after other shepherds for a sense of comfort and security and provision. Here's an illustration from my life. Guess what company these jeans and this shirt are from? And this shirt and this shirt. Patagonia, how'd you guess? I happen to love Patagonia. Um, So I hope this is an insightful and self-critical illustration. As I come to the question of false shepherds, there's an immediate question in my mind. Where's my sense of comfort coming from? Like, I I think Patagonia clothes are comfortable. But is there a level of comfort that I get from a brand? Like a sense of identity? You know what I'm saying? Ironically, Patagonia has a product line called Patagonia Provisions. And here's where I hope this is helpful. And their mission, which is stated by their founder, Yvonne Chouinard, he says this, instead of waiting for some miraculous high-tech solution to bail us out of our climate change disaster, the real miracle turns out to be simply working with nature instead of against it. Our grasslands and the soil beneath them might just save the world. I love that. Why do we wait for some miracle high-tech solution, you know, to bail us out of our personal disaster, a cure, a raise, a promotion, a knight in shining armor? Man, if I just had that person in my life. A more perfect church. Man, if I could just find that one church, I'd be happy. When the Lord is our shepherd, (laughs) the Lord is with us. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he is with me. And thus, what this means is, is the other shepherds in our lives are not shepherds. They're not. They might try and put on a shepherd costume and talk like a shepherd and look like shepherds. They're not shepherds. We need to expose the false shepherds for what they are. They're false. They're fakes. And that, at a root level, is what it means to have an idol. You've heard me talk about this before. Tim Keller, in his classic, now classic book called Counterfeit Gods, says this, anything that absorbs your heart and your imagination more than God, anything you or I seek to give us what only God can give us, which includes everything, <laughs> can be an idol. Do you hear that? Which includes everything. Most people think you can make a God out of money or sex or power, but anything in life can serve as an idol, is what Keller writes. A God alternative, a counterfeit God, a false shepherd. In fact, he says the greater the good, uh, the more hope you put in that thing, the more investment you, emotional investment you put in, the more it meets your deepest emotional needs, the more likely it's serving as an idol in your life. More likely. The very best things in life can serve as idols as well. And idolatry was especially rampant as an issue for Israel's kings, both before David after David, David happens to be known as one of the few kings that didn't technically bow down to idols, though one of his wives did bring an idol into their household. Spoiler alert. I think it's an issue for David, too. And we'd be naive to think David was above idolatry. I mean, under, his de- under Keller's definition, David fell prey to the idol of, of power, influence, control, status. I mean, he fell prey to these idols, and they almost ruined him. So idolatry is an issue for every generation, every human heart. The human heart, as Calvin said somewhere, is a factory for idols. So is your heart, if you have a human heart. And so why, you know, why do we experience deep fear and anxiety and paralysis and all these things? Because we're looking for someone else or something else to be what only God can be to us, a miracle solution, as Yvonne Chouinard says. We think there's something in the world that we need to help us cope and bring us through that valley give us peace. So let me ask you a question. What are you putting your your confidence in right now? Who's your shepherd? Think about it. You You can find this in a lot of different ways, but I think best way to find out what you're actually putting your confidence in, who your shepherd is, is to evaluate your source of worry. 
Like if you're up at night worrying about something, that's probably what you're putting your value in and your identity in. And that, What do you worry about? What are you worrying about? Now, I was thinking about this, where I invest most of my worry capital. <laughs> it's basically two areas, work and family, children and work, and a distant third, like health. Though as I get older, and some of you could teach me a lot about this, I'll probably worry about that too more. Um, but with, wor- with children, like, I worry about our kids. My daughter, Marn, has to walk by a strip club every school day on Lake City Way. I worry about the cell phone she now uses and the impact, this thing that, who knows? I worry about that. I worry about middle school, period. <laughs> like, every day. And my son, Elliot, who's sitting here, I worry about you too, bud. As you go through school and all the challenges of being a boy in this world, and what does it mean to be a man, right? Especially as you look at the men in the world who are our role models. Are you guys going to be good enough? You know? I worry. I worry about work, performance anxiety, every Sunday at 9.30. <laughs> I'm serious. Uh, I worry if I'm going to be here and nobody's going to show up. When Jenny transitions, I worry about that. I do. Uh, and so next month, what's it going to look like here? Uh, which I know are experiences that you all wrestle with too. Like, man, if you think you worry about work, Jack, come work at Amazon. <laughs> really? I mean, you're working in 90-hour-a-week environments where you have a, that quote-unquote horrible boss, where you, you, know, you have that performance review and you're being threatened to be laid off. Uh, you, you look at your kids and you have that fight on the way in. You feel like you're out of control. Your lives are out of control. You worry. We're all worrying about something. And let me just say this. It's good. It's okay. It's, it's good to be concerned about these things. You heard me say it. Worry is actually a, probably a good thing at a level. It's good that we have a desire for our work to matter. It's good that we have a nagging restlessness about our children's well-being. It's good that we have a burden for justice that keeps us up at night. It's good that we're concerned for the lost. God's wired us in a, such a way that concern for those things is proper. It's, it's good. But when we start to experience this worry in such a way that it's beyond our control, it means, I think, that what we're looking to for our shepherding, our shepherd source of comfort, has focused or has shifted from being God to that thing. Does this make sense to you? It's another God. Um, so, friends, where are you worrying right now? You need to expose that. David says, The Lord is my shepherd. I, I won't worry about a thing. The Lord guides me through these deep valleys. And those things are not going to bring comfort to your life. They're lying to you if you think they will. Uh, so here's a couple questions for you. Have you been looking to the performance shepherd like I do <laughs> for your sense of comfort and guidance to prove to somebody that you're somebody? Have you been looking to the relationship shepherd in order not to not experience loneliness or heartache? Have you been looking to the shepherd of financial security? You know, just laying enough aside so you have a safety net. What causes you to worry? We're all facing it. Follow the good shepherd, okay? Seek his guidance. Allow him to expose that. He won't leave you, okay? That's the promise here. So that's the first uh, level of awareness. Expose those shepherds. It's hard. Not going to be fun, <laughs> okay? But there's, there's hope in the valley as well. So let's get to that. So here's the second level of awareness. 
So you're exposing the shepherd. You're in the valley. Acknowledge, here you go, the immense depth and yet the non-permanence of the valley. Okay? So the Lord is my shepherd. I don't need a thing. I think that's right. I should probably pull it up. <laughs> Some of you, I, I didn't grow up in the church, so I barely have this thing memorized. I'm just working through it right now. Let me pull it up. <laughs> Somebody else should be preaching right now. Here we go. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I don't need a thing. I'm going to skip to verse 4. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil. Okay? I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop that first part. Even though I walk through the darkest valley. So you acknowledge the immense depth of that valley, and yet it's non-permanence. So the valley of the shadow of death. David's, he's drawing in years of experience as a shepherd. He had been a shepherd as one of Jesse's sons. And I've never been to Israel, but I know exactly what that valley looks like. Because I lived in, as, I, as some of you know, I share about my experience in Kenya all the time. And I had this opportunity while there to go up to the Great Rift, uh, the Great Rift Valley, northern Kenya. I had some friends that planted a church up in, uh, amongst the Pakot people, which are a Nilotic tribe. Kind of like the Maasai people, if you've seen the Maasai. Very similar tribe. And so it's this dry, arid, hot lakes region that's old ancient volcanoes and these alkaline, pure alkaline lakes, like 98% salt, barely any water left. The earth is this bright red ancient volcanic earth. And I remember the first time I went up there, I got dropped off by a taxi and I was going to visit these friends. And we, we probably drove like 50 miles on dirt off of pavement, which if you've been to Africa, you know the dirt's like this, right? You guys have been, so you know. And then the driver just signaled to me in really broken English, this is where you get off and I turn around. I was like, okay. There's nobody, like nobody, not even shepherds. <laughs> and there's this little hut, little wooden hut. And he said, you sit there and somebody will come get you. I was like, okay. Literally, I just naively, I agreed. I, I got out and, I, and he drove away like in this dust storm. And as I scanned my surroundings, I was sure I'd just been driven to my death. Like I'm dead. I'm so dead. I don't have a water bottle. I don't have food. I don't have a cell phone. There's nobody. There's lions in Kenya. You know, like I'm dead. And like, like it was something out of a Western movie would be way too gentle. Like it was just, I was just having horror, horror movie or something like that. And the key is the Great, Great River Valley here is actually an extension of the arid land of Palestine. So I've read. Kind of runs up and down that area. So when summer comes and then late spring comes and the rain stops and it gets really dry, and the rivers begin to dry up, and the grass burns up. And in order for the sheep that are there, you have shepherds in that region. By the way, I didn't die, so I'm, somebody found me. In order for the sheep to be provided for, the shepherd actually had to drive them up to the high, high places, kind of the ridge lines, uh, higher pastures, okay, where there's grasslands. Um, and the way to those high places were through these inland valleys. You've seen these in, like, California before those cut-out inland valleys that go up to the high places. Um, and it's quite likely there literally was a valley of the shadow of death, a section of trail referred to as the valley of the shadow of death because it was such a dangerous trek to go through there. There'd be robbers there. There'd be animals there. I mean, these animals are smart. They're going to find their prey. And so David's thinking about that. And there's at least three dangers I thought of this week that have in broad categories that could apply to our lives. There was, a, there was the danger, always the danger of going on the wrong path. Like during the rainy season, those trails would get washed out. And so the threat would be like you're taking a trail and all of a sudden you get to a place where it's washed out and it's now a dead end. And you know what's going to happen to the sheep? They're not going to turn around. The first sheep's going to bump into the, the second sheep's going to bump into the first sheep and it's like off the cliff. They just, 
That's the way it goes. They fall to death. That's the danger of the wrong path. There's also the dangers of enemies and elements. So the elements are obvious, hot, right? No water. Elements, like there's these, these uh, storms that can come up, like um, massive thunderstorms to just wash sheep away, you know, like called a wadi. It's like an like a avalanche of mudslide. And then there's wolves and lions and bears. Like it sounds like something out of like, that movie. What's that movie? Wizard of Oz. Yeah, totally. And then there's the fall. Then there's the, then there's the danger of false steps. Like the the sheep would just stumble off to their death. They're not the most nimble. Like they're not goats, so they just fall off to their death. So that's the valley of the shadow of death. There's all kinds of things. And interesting that phrase. I looked it up this week, and that phrase shows up almost 20 times in the Old Testament. The shadow of death. And I looked at other passages to kind of look at what it, how, how it's described. It's other places described as deepest gloom. Or the land of oblivion. Uh, it, it has a sense to it that you're totally lost and alone and your life is in chaos and disorder. You're like in a free fall. If you can imagine a sheep going off the edge, you're in a free fall. And there's no bottom. And what Scripture is saying is, in recording it over 20 times, these shadow valleys, is that that experience is not inconsistent with the life of faith. It happens to the very best of us. And indeed, we need to acknowledge the depth of it, actually. That's the reality. And I've said this before, I'll say it again today, that biblical faith is not an insurance policy against suffering. It's not. If you've been taught that, that you're supposed to pray to receive Christ, and now you're going to live happily ever after, welcome to the church. You're not, it's not. It's not an insurance policy. We're not guaranteed immunity from pain, fear, anxiety, worry. Nearly one-third of the Psalms of which David, not, David didn't write all of them, but nearly a third of all the psalms are called these psalms of lament, where we're taught that, it, and we're told it's good to express these, these experiences to God, that they're common to the life of faith. We need to learn to articulate them, actually. That's what a lament is, articulate suffering. God, I'm suffering. Don't you know? Not happy about it. That's a lament. I mean, that's a kind of, that one's not going to make the psalms, but there you go. <laughs> So we need to learn to develop a language for expressing our anger, expressing our fear, expressing our confusion. You've got to learn how to express it to God. And without language, you know what's going to happen to you? You're going to lose yourself. You are going to become, you're going to lose your hope. You're going to become cynical, disillusioned. And the picture in the Bible for somebody who loses themselves is a hard, stony heart, impenetrable, without faith. You can't have faith without some sort of despair. It's just part of our lives. So here's the question. What are the threats that you get to go through (laughs) as part of the life of faith? What are the dark valleys of our lives? I've already said that there are some parallels here. The dark valleys, loss of job, loss of relationship, divorce, death of a loved one, agony over an estranged relationship, uh, the threat that we're on the wrong path. You feel like you're stuck in a career path you can't get out of. You feel like you're stuck in a relationship. You can never, it's never going to change. We found ourselves on the wrong path. We're never going to make it to the higher pasture. You know, it's a dead end. We feel like our lives are going to be ruined. Oh, and there's enemies and elements now too. There's, there's all kinds of evil in the world out to get us and get the world and get the vulnerable. We're worried that we're going to make a huge mistake, a misstep. Like if I just don't get this thing right, this email right, if I don't say it just right on Sunday, it's all going to fall apart. And here's the deal. 
Those are real things. And so the fear that's induced by those things, it's real. We need to acknowledge them. Even though, David says, I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Even though. It's a statement of faith. Even though. He's acknowledging that he's going through something death-like. That's number one. You need to learn to acknowledge the depth of it. It's deep. And it's good to acknowledge it. Uh, My brother-in-law is a Buddhist. And though I might not agree with everything he has to teach me, he has a lot to teach me. And one of the things he's taught me in Buddhism is there's this idea of acceptance. Even though it's acceptance. It's like playing a game of Tetris. Who plays, who played Tetris before? I'm a child of the 80s, so you played this game. That sounds a little better. What'd you do? Yeah, Andrew. Wow, that was pretty cool. Like I'm in 3D now. Tetris. Yeah, I just got better. Come on, going to start preaching now. All right. <laughs> so Tetris, you know, the whole point of the game, the key to the game is waiting and seeing what's going to appear next. So you know the, the top level of the game, the shapes are just coming. You can't predict which shape's going to go next. Though some of you computer geeks probably figured out how. And you've beat Tetris. So imagine you're watching somebody play the game of Tetris. And every time this new shape appears, they just have a temper tantrum. Man, that's not the shape I wanted. You know, I was expecting the square, like the long one. I need the long one to go in there and it's going to blow the whole thing up. That would just be the dumbest thing to do, right? Because you'd lose. Like suddenly it's going to stack up on you and you're done with Tetris. But that's exactly how we tend to approach suffering. Like we, we go, man, that's not, God, that's not what I prayed for. God, I'm, I've been faithful. I've been doing it all, God. I've been going to church every Sunday, listening to that guy yak about whatever. I am, and David's saying, accept the fact that you live in a fallen world, even though you walk through this valley. And not resisting the shapes as they appear, but learning to work with them. Make them work, even though. And yet, David doesn't end there. That's the beautiful thing of this psalm. Even though I walk through you see that? That preposition is a whole sermon right there. When he says, I walk through, this is so critical. David is not camping in the shadow of the valley of death. He's not building a house there and living there. He's saying, it's not going to last forever. Even though I walk through this valley. He's saying, because the good shepherd, true shepherd, I'm being shepherded, not by a false shepherd, but a good shepherd. He understands he's going to get through it. Remember what I said last week, if you were here, kind of tried to bring this point home with verse 3 of Psalm 23. He leads me on paths of righteousness. That's misleading because we think that means paths of moral conformity. Actually, the literal translation is simply just right paths. Go back to my sermon last week. I said it with a lot more words, but there's not dead ends. He hasn't filled the, the path with enemies and elements. He's not on the dead end with you. He's taking you on the right path. This is why when John the Baptist comes in Luke 3 and he quotes Isaiah, this prophetic vision of who Jesus is going to be, he says, every valley will be filled up, every mountain and hill will be brought down, the crooked roads will become straight, the rough way smooth. Jesus has done that. He's the good shepherd. Even though I walk through that valley, I fear nothing. Because <laughs> you're with me. There's a meant. There's this immense encounter, this, this beautiful encounter that Jesus has with the disciples in Luke 8. And you're going to know the story. But they're out sailing. And the storm comes up on the Sea of Galilee. And the boat, the gospel says the boat's being swamped so that it's sinking. And they are freaking out like they're going to die in the middle of this lake. 
which I think is funny because, I mean, they're fishermen. Didn't they know how to swim? But anyway, so, sorry. So then they're, they're, not, they're bailing water, and guess what Jesus is doing? He's having a nap. Like, what? Jesus, bail water, you know? Bail water. We need to, we're going to die. And they're not, they're not only shocked, they're kind of angry with him. And they say to him, don't you care, Jesus? They wake him up, don't you care? And remember what Jesus says, or what he does. He rebukes the wind and the waves, kind of, he gets mad at them. (laughs) And then he turns to them and he just says, don't you trust me? That's it. Don't you trust me? Even though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I am with you. I never left you. I was, yeah, I was taking a nap. I was tired. But I'm with you. I never left. I'm in the boat. The sea's rising. The skies are dark, but I never left. Even though this is not going to last, guys, whatever it is. So here's the second level of awareness we're called to have in the midst of uncertainty. It's the awareness that we're in the valley and that we're walking through the valley. So here's the question. What's your valley? What's your valley right now? What dark valley are you walking through? Do you see the shepherd walking with you in that? Even though you walk through it, he's with you. That's the promise. Here's the last thing I want to say. As he's walking with us, because the valleys are dark, sometimes they can last long, we need to recognize the presence and the power. Here's the third level of awareness. Recognize the presence and the power of our good shepherd. This is where Psalm 23 has been so helpful to me and kind of where the rubber meets the road. Here's where I want to get practical with you. Look at how the uh, good shepherd, how God shows himself to David in this psalm. Uh, He says it's through a rod and a staff that bring comfort to him, okay? So what are the rod and the staff, right? You have images of shepherds. What's the rod? What's the staff? The staff was literally just a symbol of gentleness and love and tenderness. That's what a staff was. So sometimes you see when sheep are wandering off, you've seen, I probably need one right now, you know, the, the thing that takes you off. And so that's the crook, that's the, end, the, end, the hooked end of the staff. And that's to bring a wandering sheep back. And that's how shepherds sometimes use them. Also, I've read that it's a source of comfort. So I'm told shepherds will walk amongst their sheep. And this is kind of the image right now in this psalm. Shepherds just walking amongst the sheep. And they'll take the staff, and you'll do this with your kids sometimes. And they'll do it with you. And you'll just touch the sheep. If I ever had your kid kind of grab your hand just to know you're there? I see some of you even doing it right now. Not to correct, not to guide, not to discipline, just to say, I'm here. I'm here. I'm your shepherd. Have personal contact, a way to reassure the shepherd hasn't left. You're in the dark valley. It's dark. I'm not gone. I'm still here. To, to be a source of reassurance in the midst of that darkness. Uh, there's this famous scene from that movie, and this can happen, by the way, through all kinds of stuff. Like, you can read a scripture. You know, you read Psalm 23, you read another scripture, and you feel, ah, God is speaking to me. Or, you know, you have a relationship you're in, somebody says this prophetic, amazing thing to you, and you're like, how'd you know, you know? Um, It could be a piece of music. There's that scene from the Shawshank Redemption, and we heard about this in this retreat we were on. It just reminded me, like, Tim Robbins' character, Andy Dufresne, I think he's in the prison library. You guys ever seen this movie? It's a little old, but... And he took control of the loudspeaker system. He puts a record. Remember records? Remember those things? Vinyl records? Hello? <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, so it's music. And he puts it on the, puts it on the, puts it on the um, loudspeaker system of the prison. And then what, you remember what plays? this opera aria. This beautiful two women singing. And remember what happens in the prison as they're there. 
All the men, it's an all-male prison, are just shocked. Some of them are in bed, some of them are working, some of them are out in the field exercising, and they're stunned, and everything in the prison stops. And they all just start looking up. And then Morgan Freeman's character, his name's Red, he has this voiceover, and I've always loved this. He says, I have no idea to this day what those two Italian ladies were singing about. Truth is, I don't want to know. Some things are best left unsaid. I think they were singing about something so beautiful it can't be expressed, not with words, but it makes your heart ache because of it. I tell you, those voices soared higher and farther than anybody in a dark place like Shawshank dares to dream. It was some beautiful bird flapped. It was as if some beautiful bird flapped into our drab little cage and made those walls dissolve away for the briefest moment. And every man in Shawshank felt free. That's beautiful. The shepherd is in this valley with you to comfort you, to say, I'm here. And he can come in so many different ways. And he's asking you, do you know? I'm, com- I'm here to comfort you today, just to let you know I'm here. So that's the staff. Where's God's comfort in your life right now? Could you celebrate that? Thank you, God. And then there's the rod. And this is simply David's means of saying that the shepherd's also armed. So you have the staff and this rod. And rods were simply, especially in Africa, I saw African shepherds with these, but in the Middle East, I'm told as well, uh, shepherds will go into the brush and find a small sapling tree dig it out before it's mature, and then cut off the, the root section or the, the end of the, the, whatever that's called in the tree. What? The trunk. Thank you. Ooh, I'm losing my words. At the end of that is a root ball. So they cut off all the, the young roots and shape it into this club and then stick it in their belt. Um, actually, when I was living in Kenya, I, uh, that's another story. Never mind. So you have this club. And so David, David actually once told, told Saul when he was, uh, remember in that story with Goliath? And they bring all of Jesse's sons forward to fight Goliath, and then they bring David, and what? No, this guy? And David, you know how he, his like little resume for Saul? He's like, I killed a bear and a lion with my bare hands once. Like this one time, this lion came along and took one of our sheep, and I chased, I chased it down and beat it down and killed it with my, with my rod. I mean, it's true. That's how he got the opportunity to kill Saul, or to kill Goliath. Didn't kill Saul. (laughs) I mean, how about that for smack talk, right? Like, Goliath, this uncircumcised Philistine, (laughs) I'm going to get him. And that's what David says. So, and what that reminds us is that in the midst of darkness, when it seems like life is completely out of control, it seems like it's complete disorienting chaos. Remember, that's what Shadow Valley is. The enemy's elements are all around us. We can't cope out of our control. The illness is so debilitating. The relationship is so consistently difficult. The job is so defeating and deflating. Your financial picture is so bleak. Whatever it is, your future with raising children, intimacy and marriage, all that stuff. The Bible says in those times, all those things are looming. The shepherd is armed with power, his rod and his staff. They're a comfort and he's got a rod a sign of his authority, a sign of his veracity, a sign of his strength to overcome evil. I mean, that's read Revelation 21. All things will cease that are evil. Well, great, you say. <laughs> Thanks for that. I mean, I love Revelation 21. How does that touch down in my life? Well, there's this place. I'm going to finish with this. Wait for it. In, in 2 Chronicles 32. 
How many of you have read that recently? Digging deep. So don't turn there. But read it sometime. I'm going to tell you about it. It's at, the, it's, at, uh, it's at the end of King Hezekiah's life. And he was known, if you remember him, he's after David, well after David. And he instituted a set of reforms that caused this revival in Israel. And, uh, you know, they've been way off idolatry, bad, bad kings. And then Hezekiah comes along and this set of reforms. And he's a young kid. And, and, and at, the, at the end of that time, toward the end of his life, it says in 2 Chronicles 32 that after all that Hezekiah had faithfully done, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, came and invaded Judah. And he laid siege to the fortified cities, and he think, thinking he could conquer them for himself. And so Hezekiah has to face this threat, enemies and elements, darkness surrounding him. He's, been, he's lived a good life. He's a good king. And suddenly it's all coming, crashing down around him. But before he does that, Second Chronicles 32, verses 7 and 8, he gives this amazing speech to his his people. And he says this, be strong and be courageous. Do not be afraid or be discouraged because the king of Assyria and the vast army that's with him, uh, excuse me, do not be afraid or discouraged because of the king of Assyria and the vast army with him, for there is greater power with us than with him. With him, there's only the arm of flesh. Yeah, he's got a bigger army. Probably destroy the city. With us, <laughs> He says this, there's the arm of God. And that's often code for the rod. <laughs> the power of the Lord to help us fight our battles. And the Lord does. And it says the people gained confidence from just what Hezekiah said. And they resisted Sennacherib. So God's in and amongst each of our lives to comfort us and to give us confidence to face the enemies and the elements in our lives. Which is discouragement and darkness, whatever it is. He's amongst us. And so some of us are not experiencing that. We are, we think God, we, we deserve more. We deserve better. And some of us aren't experiencing that because we're wandering off, right? And so the invitation is to allow the shepherd to guide you back. And remember, he is your shepherd. He's not your consultant. He's your shepherd. He's your leader. Others of us are, are discouraged because we are so overwhelmed that there's nothing God can do. God can't be greater than this. And we just need to remember God is armed with ultimate power. It may be a hard season ahead of you, but God is armed with the rod. So how is God reminding you of his presence and his power today? That's the question I want us to meditate on as we, um, as we conclude in worship. So I want to invite our worship team forward. We're just going to sing one song in response, and then we have a special thing to do at the very end here. Um, I want to invite you, just how is God... Ex- in expressing his power, his presence, his comfort, trying to give you confidence in your life right now. How is God reminding you that he's guiding you? Just think back over your week. Think of the ways God's been in your life. Um, the ways he's showing up through a word, through a friendship, through a song. It could be in any, any number of ways. How's God trying to express himself? Caution says that the secret that's been hidden from ages but now is revealed is that Christ is in us, the hope of glory. He's trying to express himself in and through you and reveal to you a next step. How's God trying to express himself to you? Let's take a moment to pray. God, thanks for this opportunity we have to receive from you now what you're trying to express to us. (laughs) 
We know you're the shepherd. We know you're good. We know you're here to guide us, God, both personally and collectively. And yet some of us, God, the, the darkness has gotten so closed in. We feel closed in. We feel threatened. We feel alone. So I pray for those friends in the room here that are feeling that way, God. I pray specifically for the discouraged this morning. I pray pray specifically for those that are filled with doubt. I pray specifically for the ones that are sick, God. And God, while I would love to ask for a full measure of your healing, I know you want to heal. I, I trust you for that. We trust you for that. So we just pray, we ask God for a sense of your presence this morning in our lives, an awareness, God, that you're with us. Thank you that you are. Pray in Christ's name. Amen.